the national political institutions, I think pretty much as a result of Donald Trump's presidency, were also weakened. And so the combination of these weakened institutions where there was not a role for expertise and contingency plans were thrown out, combined with the unevenness of state-level institutions that has always been there, has resulted in the situation that we're in. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. We are in a strange phase of the corona pandemic. The gravity of a situation became clear at the very latest about a month ago. We started to take extreme measures at social distancing. But it doesn't feel as though we've learned a lot more over the last couple of weeks. Uh, we still don't really have a strong sense of a true fatality rate of a disease. We still don't know how long it'll take to have an effective remedy or a vaccine. And so it can feel as though we're sitting at home, waiting out this crisis day by day, unsure about what comes next. I don't know what comes next either, but I have a few thoughts on where we're at. The first is a good piece of news. Extreme measures at social distancing do seem to be working. The case numbers, even the fatality rates in Italy and Spain and Korea are going down. In the United States, the number of deaths is still rising, but at least in the last few days, it seems as though the number of cases is starting to level off. So we're in the process of saving many lives. But the question, of course, is what comes after that? How long can we sustain that? And if we don't want to put society on a hold for a year, for 18 months, what on earth else can we do? Well, as I recently wrote in The Atlantic, I think it's quite clear what we need to do. We need to put a very ambitious process of test, treat and quarantine into place, making sure that we can figure out who already has antibodies and hopefully at least temporary immunity against the disease, making sure that we catch people as quickly as possible when they become sick, making sure that they and the people they've been in contact with are effectively quarantined so they can't pass the disease on to the next person. Secondly, concurrently, we need to be testing as we are all of these different remedies against COVID-19 and then roll those out as quickly as we can, upping the number of people who we are saving even if they fall sick with this disease. And then thirdly, we of course have to keep expanding the capacity of our medical system to take on patients and treat them. Now, the hopeful thing about these measures is that they all are mutually reinforcing. If we ensure that only a third as many people get this disease as they otherwise would, if we ensure that only a third of those cases become serious because we have some kind of drug to impede its progress. And if we then make sure that our medical system can deal with many more patients, ensuring that only one out of the three people who might die for lack of oxygen pass away because we have oxygen for them, we have ventilators for them, we have specialized medical treatment for them. The difference would not just be additive, it would be multiplicative. One third times one third times one third would mean that only one twenty-seventh as many people would die. So I think that there are levers we can pull to get out of this hopeless situation. My concern is about whether governments are actually taking those steps, actually preparing for testing at a large enough scale, isolating people effectively, letting them know 
if you've come into contact with somebody who's had this disease at a large scale. And that I'm far from certain about. Naturally, in this podcast, I'm going to be thinking for the next few episodes through what's going on in the world. It's pointless to pretend that you can have conversations about the world at the moment that don't in one way or another revolve around the coronavirus. So next week, I will have David Miliband, the former British Foreign Secretary and now head of the International Rescue Committee on the show to discuss what he considers the deepest political crisis of his lifetime. But now uh, I have somebody coming on the podcast with whom I've been in conversation for a very long time, and we've been planning to get him on the podcast for quite a while, but here he finally is. It's Dan Ziblatt. Dan Ziblatt is best known as the co-author of How Democracies Die, a very good book you should be reading alongside the People versus Democracy. But he's also the Eton Professor of the Science of Government at Harvard University. And the author of a book that I actually find in many ways even more interesting called Conservative Parties and the Birth of Democracy. Dan and I try to think through the implications of the coronavirus for populism, but also for areas of politics much beyond populism in the next hour or so. I really hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome to the podcast, Daniel. Yeah, it's wonderful to have a chance to talk. I've been meaning to have you on for so long, and we talk a lot, but we've never actually done a podcast together. And now I suppose we do it under circumstances where we're both trying to grapple with this strange political and, I suppose, biological moment, making sense of this global pandemic. So I still want to make sure that we end up talking about our wheelhouse, which is democracy and populism, a little bit. But I also think, uh, you know, we're trying to understand the nature of a crisis itself. Some people have been saying that this is the most extraordinary political crisis they've lived through. Do you share that sentiment? And if so, what makes it that? I think it's extraordinary in the sense that it's unrecognizable or it's an experience for which we don't really have the right frameworks to think about. I mean, I remember living through the collapse of communism. I mean, I was in high school, so I wasn't as fully alert as I am now, I guess. And that seemed more distant, of course, because that wasn't affecting our daily lives. I was living in California at the time. 9-11, I guess, is the other thing that people often refer to. But that also felt, you know, as if it was not, I mean, there was a bit of an existential dread, you know, in the very days around 9-11, but that was short-lived and the political life sort of was recognizable. I do have the feeling that things feel less recognizable. The bearings that one has have sort of given away a little bit. So I think in that sense, if that's what you mean by extraordinary, that's right. One of the things that would be great to talk to you about is to what degree is that really true? Are old patterns being unsettled or are old patterns simply being reinforced? I mean, 10 years from now, will we look back and think, oh, that wasn't as significant as we thought. It's interesting to be living through a period where it's hard to even make that judgment. That's exactly what I've been trying to think through. I mean, the first thing to say, which I feel confident about, is a kind of disdain for the people who have peddled the same solution for the last 30 years. And now we have what does, as you're saying, feel like a very different kind of crisis. And what they do, they say, hey, look, the thing that I've always been in favor of has now been proven to be right. And that's obviously true of some of the people who are enemies of globalization on the right. I think it's also true of some people like, say, Naomi Klein, who say, you see, this is the reason why we have to abolish capitalism on the left. I think both of those knee-jerk reactions are just a little bit too simple. Let's start with what it should change, perhaps, before we go into what it will change. And those two things won't necessarily match up to each other. You know, it is odd because a pandemic is a rare event. Certainly, I think this shows the need to take tail end risks more seriously. It shows the risk for having a healthcare system which can deal with or at least ramp up to deal with much higher capacity in moments of crisis. It clearly shows the need for having a strategic reserve for things like ventilators. And therefore, it may call in doubt the extent to which some nations have outsourced 
production of essential goods, it's not obvious to me that it calls in doubt in a more fundamental way the interconnectedness in the world, world trade, a lot of the things that people are now saying uh, will be deeply impacted by it. What's your sense on this? I mean, is this sort of the end of globalization? Is there any reason to think that either it should or it will be? Yeah, I haven't really thought about it in terms of the economic effects, because the people who make these arguments often are sitting comfortably in their houses with internet connections and a steady supply of groceries. So, you know, at some level, those systems are still intact, and we, in fact, depend upon those. And people are eating, you know, fruit from all around the world. And, you know, I'm here having oranges with my breakfast in Berlin and March. I mean, so I'm enjoying the fruits of globalization, literally. One way of thinking about this is that it exposes or casts in sharp relief weaknesses and strengths in societies that were already there. And so I do think that the things that I think about are at two levels. One, at the political level, the degree to which you have effective states that can respond to genuine crises or alternatively to that, a kind of weak version of that is essentially, I think what we're seeing in the United States is a kind of formal patrimonial state where you've had a hollowing out of the state. I mean, I think in some ways, Donald Trump, his governance of the U.S. is is a kind of Weberian patrimonial leader where his family members, the lines between public and private are blurred, a kind of disdain for expertise because this is not in his direct purview. And so all of that has hollowed out the state. I mean, I don't think it begins with Trump. But all of this makes clear that we need stronger, more effective states to have a greater role for expertise. And I think actually more than just that, uh, space within especially our national political institutions, but also at the state level, where there's a fora for experts to deliberate. And, you know, one of the things I'm struck by is the sense that, you know, there's a couple of experts who kind of, you know, speak in the press conferences every day. I mean, I assume behind them there's armies of experts. But I think really what we need and what's missing is a kind of opportunity for economists, public health experts, doctors to all get together and to lay out the various dilemmas. I mean, the moment this crisis emerged in January, this is what should have happened. There should have been an opportunity for experts to get together to talk about all of the potential weaknesses or dilemmas or challenges that were going to emerge. What are some responses? There's going to be trade-offs. There's no silver bullet to deal with this. And just to provide a kind of forum of deliberation, I think that in some ways is missing or appears to be missing. So that's the political realm. At a social realm, I do think that this sort of cast in a sharp relief, the importance of a category, I guess, that we could think of as social resilience, like to the degree to which societies are robust. And this, you know, this does get into the realm of, of social welfare and how well organized civil society is. You know, at some level, the U.S. is strong in this domain because you see this kind of mass mobilization of people at the state level and a local level of people trying to cope with this. But on the other hand, the degree to which people don't have the resources to survive in a crisis because they, you know, don't have the social networks to support themselves, people, you know, one paycheck away from complete devastation in their personal lives shows the vulnerability of population. So I guess this sort of feeds into the sort of stories that are told about levels of inequality and declining social mobility in the United States. I think all of this is also exposed. Again, so I don't think this calls into question the kind of value of economic globalization, but I think it just exposes the fragility of weak political institutions and also the fragility of societies that are not as resilient as they ought to be. Yeah, so perhaps we should understand a little bit more about the nature of a response as it's happening and the differences between types of political regime, between types of political leader, between types of economic systems in how different countries are managing to respond better or worse. And then we might be able to get back to the question of what are the long-term implications. You know, on that, I feel like there's two categories of countries. There's countries that are failing miserably and there's countries that are looking somewhat better by comparison, but have also in important ways been slow and ineffective in the response. So let's start with the particularly shocking examples. You know, I've been writing a little bit about the fact that you should have assumed that the United States would do particularly well in dealing with something like the current pandemic. I think most political scientists, when asked who can deal especially well with an extraordinary crisis that puts many lives at risk, would have pointed to a simple metric of state capacity. 
in order to answer that question. And, um, you know, the United States, depending on how you operationalize state capacity, is not necessarily the country with the highest state capacity in the world, but it certainly has a lot of state capacity, certainly more than, say, a poorer democracy like India. Public health experts would have pointed to the number of hospital beds, to the existence of experts who can develop uh, responses, to the existence of a strong institution like the CDC. And in fact, when the School of Public Health at Hopkins and a few other people uh, made a list, a ranking of countries that would do particularly well in a public health emergency that have a good preparedness system, the United States came out on top. And yet, at least as we're recording this on April 1st, it feels as though that isn't the case, as though the United States is actually doing significantly worse than its peer countries and other developed democracies in uh, coordinating a response, in making tests available to its citizens, in sending a clear message, in ensuring that this is not yet another piece of fodder for a culture war over how people should be acting. I mean, should this change our view of the United States and its capacity of actually serving its citizens and dealing with an emergency as the United States, as I wrote perhaps a little bit provocatively in a recent piece, just a paper tiger desperately searching for the nearest shredder? Or do you think that that's an overly pessimistic reading, both of how America has been responding to the crisis and of how generalizable that lesson is. It's always fun to talk to you because I think we're always often in opposite situations. So here I am an American living in Germany, admiring the German response or expecting a wonderful German response because I have this great admiration for the robustness of the German state and German government and the effectiveness of German public institutions. And, and you're a German or were a German, you're an American now, but living in America with high expectations for America. And so in a funny way, my expectations of the US have always been much lower perhaps than yours, I guess. And probably your expectations of Germany are much lower than mine. And so I'm not as surprised, I guess, by this. I mean, clearly the US is a robust democracy. I think despite the threats of Donald Trump, it's an effective state. state. But I guess I've always been more skeptical. I mean, there are these interesting parallels between Germany and the U.S. and differences that I think are actually revealing a more sort of general lessons. I mean, one of the things that's distinctive about the U.S. state and U.S. federalism is that partly through the progressive era and in particular through the New Deal, you had the creation of a highly effective national government. I mean, the CDC was, I think, created in 1946. And you had, you know, in the middle part of the 20th century, an incredible project of modernization of political institutions and a role for expertise, top-notch in the world unquestionably. But what I've always thought is kind of interesting, I remember reading an article by Margaret Weir, the sociologist, who made the case that one of the interesting things about the New Deal in the United States, and this is kind of not just social policy, but in general, that the New Deal all happened at the national level. It didn't happen at the level of the states. The states, by and large, remain backwaters. And so, you know, the U.S. has always been this kind of system that has highly developed, incredibly effective national political institutions, both in terms of foreign policy, obviously, as well as domestic policy. But at the level of states, it's very uneven. I mean, certainly in New York, Massachusetts, there are certain states that have had highly developed public health institutions and so on, but it's incredibly uneven across the U.S. states. And so I think what we're witnessing in a way is the U.S. states have always been kind of uneven, which is what we're seeing. But what we're seeing that's new is that the national political institutions, I think pretty much as a result of Donald Trump's presidency, were also weakened. And so the combination of these weakened institutions where there was not a role for expertise and contingency plans were thrown out, combined with the unevenness of state-level institutions that has always been there, has resulted in the situation that we're in. You know, because I think in principle, a decentralized system, a decentralized response doesn't have to be ineffective. I mean, my understanding of how the German system of testing, why there are so many tests, I mean, this is the kind of accounts that I've read here, is that the tests are all being carried out at the very, very local level, the districts of Berlin. You know, you go into your local office and you get tested or they come to your house if you have symptoms of coronavirus. So it's a highly decentralized system and the proliferation of testing is not being done by a centralized office in Berlin. This is being done across German states and you have more evenly effective 
public health institutions across Germany, whereas in the U.S. you've had highly ineffective public health institutions without the capacity either A, to do the tests and B, to analyze the results of the test, which is something, again, that really contrasts. So I think in a sense that the American state has always had this soft underbelly, which are at the state level. And at the national level, we have this exceptional weakness because of the last three years of the presidency. And that's the paper tiger, I think, that you're describing. Look, I mean, as with every great crisis or with most turning points politically, there's always some things that confirm your pre-existing view and some things that challenges them. I think the failure of a lot of authoritarian populists around the world to protect the populations from the coronavirus is one of the great ways in which my thinking has been confirmed. For years, people like you and me have been warning about the politicization of independent institutions, the disregard for experts, the prioritization of personal interest and profit over the well-being of the citizens that prime ministers and presidents are sworn to protect. And I think for a long time, those warnings have felt a little bit abstract. You know, in fact, it turns out that a relatively incompetent leader or even uh, quite a violent venal one can keep the ship running as long as all of the machinery is in place and there's not a big storm and everything sort of runs in a relatively automized fashion. Now we're seeing that when it comes to a huge crisis in which you actually need a competent, honest captain who inspires the confidence of the crew and the passengers, all of those abstract warnings suddenly become very, very urgent because our lives are at stake. And we're seeing the price that we're paying in the United States, certainly, for Donald Trump's determination to play down the danger of the coronavirus for a very long time, uh, for the existence of an ego media echo chamber like Fox News that was backing him up on this for a very long time. Um, so that's the comfortable lesson. But I would say that there's also an uncomfortable lesson which is that if you look at the reporting for why there isn't good testing in the United States, some of it certainly is a lack of political coordination, lack of leadership. And I do think that a competent president and White House administration might have been able to avoid a lot of those mistakes. But a lot of the mistakes don't come directly from Trump or Pence or even the Secretary for Human Health and Services. They come from the CDC and they come from, by and large, relatively professional experts at the CDC who decided to mistrust the WHO test, to make a test of their own. They come from the FDA being too slow to accept the need for more flexibility and urgency in this crisis and therefore slowing the approval of uh, various uh, tests and other treatments. So how do you interpret that? Yeah, you're right. That is harder to understand. I mean, I guess one way of thinking about that is that one of the critiques of the CDC is how highly centralized this whole process was. So in other words, this kind of idea that you have to send, I mean, I'm no expert on these matters here, but from what I've read, the tests had to be sent to Atlanta to be analyzed. And there's this highly centralized system so that there was too much reliance on these central federal institutions. And that actually it may have been possible to have a kind of more decentralized system of public health administration that would have allowed for kind of more innovation. I mean, that's an uncomfortable lesson for me because I'm somebody who has tended to think, you know, you want strong central institutions and especially in the moment of a public health crisis. But that's, again, why I think it's been kind of interesting to watch the German system that is the kind of process and of response to this and the testing hasn't come from the center. I mean, there is no equivalent to the American CDC, and that may be actually a strength of the German response. So that's at least one part of the story is that it's perhaps excessive centralization and insufficient capacity at the subnational level. But I think, you know, maybe you're right. I, I guess I have less of an understanding of why these highly vaunted public health institutions kind of fell down on the job in the way that you're describing. So it's the absence of testing, certainly. So that's one part of the story. But then the other part of the story has to be the kind of delayed response since January. I, I mean, I wouldn't want to put all of the blame on these public health actors without knowing more details of the kind of bureaucratic politics that resulted in this. But this is a bit like 9-11 in that you had you know, this kind of failure of intelligence and, you know, the famous 9-11 commission report that was a bestseller even, I think, for a while where it investigated what exactly had gone wrong and the sharing of information. And this was kind of bureaucratic politics. And again, I think perhaps this exposes something that is broken and people will be studying this for years to come, I think. 
Do you have ideas on this? I don't know. I mean, I sort of feel like until I know kind of what went wrong in terms of bureaucratic politics at the center. So I've read a little bit of the incipient reporting on it, and it's obviously very early days on that. And no doubt there will be some journalist whose name will be made by writing a definitive account of everything that went wrong in those weeks and months. And that book certainly has not yet been published. But I guess I do see a situation in which, let's put it this way, I think that does bring us to Germany as well. Now, I think the German reaction has so far been rather better than the United States. I think there's been clearer communication from the top. The country did adopt social distancing measures in a serious and somewhat uniform way earlier than the United States. It, I think, recognized the need to prepare its public health system and its hospitals a little bit earlier than the United States did. But the difference is not as large as I would have liked. I was in a debate at this point two and a half weeks ago on Twitter with a German government minister who was saying, this is just like the flu. I pitched articles talking about the need for social distancing to German papers who said, oh, look, the stuff in Italy You know, I mean, Italy is Italy. Our public health system is never going to have a problem. And of course, we are now seeing German hospitals starting to be stretched very thin, as well as indeed are those in the United Kingdom, as are certainly those in New York City. So this doesn't turn out to be just something for Italy. And there, I guess, it goes back to what I was saying about normal moments versus extraordinary moments. I think especially in German political culture, but perhaps more broadly in European political culture, there is this sense that The Nazis were terrible for any number of reasons, but one of them was that it was a time of experimenting. And Konrad Adenauer in the post-war era, one election after the other, on the famous slogan of no experiments. Now, actually, I think that wasn't quite true at that moment. I think in the post-war era, Germany and other European countries experimented institutionally in some very interesting ways. I mean, that both goes to the nature of the German constitution and the federal setup, which is unique in its way. I mean, obviously, there's other federal countries, but there's a lot of institutional innovation there. And then, of course, it's true of the foundation of something like the European Union. That was an incredibly visionary way of responding institutionally uh, to changed facts. But that's not how Germans or Europeans now perceive the founding moment of a post-war order. They don't think of it as a moment of creativity and risk-taking. They think of it as a moment of conservatism. And insofar as they think that that post-war order has served Europe well, and I think in most ways it has, they therefore conclude that a virtuous politician, a sensible politician, has to always be averse to experiments, has to always follow the playbook that people like Konrad Adenauer and then with very important amendments Willy Brandt put in place, because that's what the recipe for success has always been. And so I think the ability, and that's particularly true of Germany, but of other countries as well, to innovate when the circumstances change, to understand the need to respond to extraordinary circumstances in sometimes extraordinary ways, is very limited. So when something can be solved with the existing playbook, a competent, decent, well-meaning governments like the one in Germany or like the one in France or even, though I'm not a huge fan of Boris Johnson, like the one in Britain, are capable of doing that reasonably well. When the demands of the moment are extraordinary, they still try to meet those demands with the ordinary means of the everyday toolkit we've developed in the post-war order, and that just doesn't work. I do agree with you, but I think what's interesting is the point that you made about Adenauer is that behind the rhetoric and slogan of no experiments, in fact, it's this transformative kind of political experiment of post-war Germany. And so I think that recipe of a rhetoric of stability disguising transformative politics, maybe that's a formula that can be used again. I'm not sure what the transformative institutional solutions are, but I guess I I would be cautious of reading too much into just the kind of rhetoric and the kind of language that politicians use and assuming that means nothing new is happening, as evidenced by, in fact, Adenauer. And so one of the things I just was reading about in the papers today here was the discussions about the tracking using mobile devices of people. So that's certainly an innovative idea and quite controversial. The idea, you know, being if you track people on their mobile devices, you can find out who they come into contact with, and this is a way of tracking the virus. 
There's obviously all sorts of civil liberties issues associated with this. And so the current standing of this, as I understand it, is that it's a voluntary process. And, you know, these apps are being developed and it can be a voluntary process. But the criticism of the voluntary process is that unless like 60% of the population is using it, it doesn't do any good. So you have to convince a lot of people to sign up for this. If that kind of thing were to happen, I would say that's certainly innovative. I don't know if that's the kind of thing you have in mind. There's a lot of people who would be very nervous about that, certainly. So I'm not sure how successful that is, but that's one thought. But I think you're right. I mean, this has a bit to do with the parties and the degree to which they're sort of these kind of top-heavy parties where you have very hierarchical parties where people spend years in the party before coming to the top of the party. And I think that's been the general mode that just as with individuals, you know, when you're successful in life, you continue to copy the formulas that you've used in your life and when faced with new challenges. You're not at all speaking as a Harvard professor thinking about your colleagues, are you? Yeah, right. And just in general, U.S. presidents, it's the same. You know, anybody at the early stages of your life, like whatever kind of you've confronted a challenge, both personal or intellectual or academic or professional, and you figure out a way to survive that challenge challenge, then, you know, next time around, you come to uh, another challenge, you're going to think back, now, how did I deal with that last challenge? And what lessons can I draw from that? And so you're sort of bound to kind of draw upon those same experiences. And so there's, there is a kind of conservatism, there's a path dependence built in. And I think we see that very strongly. in I'm, I'm trying to make some metaphor work of, uh, you know, hammers and nails and academic theories and real problems, but I'm, I'm, <laughs> yes. too, slow to, I'm yeah. too slow to make it work. If any of the listeners can come up with a right quip, please uh, tweet at me yeah. or email me. Can I just, though, return to the U.S. for a second? Because, you know, you're asking this question about what are the uncomfortable lessons about the U.S. I mean, what went wrong with the testing? It's not just about kind of the failure of the Trump administration. There seems to be, it's like the experts failed in some ways. And so as I'm thinking about it, it seems like there's a couple of different potential explanations of that. One is in some ways the first thing I would think of, which is that there is a way in which if the populist illiberal right intrudes itself into national leadership, it kind of destroys political institutions. And so that's what we're seeing is the kind of infection of Trumpism into our national institutions of the areas of that we would have thought would have been the impartial institutions of expertise. Have been. It's a great test case, isn't it? So so, so once we get yes. better reporting on what happened at the CDC, it'll be great to see, you know, does the fraud come from the parts of the CDC that hadn't really been subject to the degradations of a Trump era? Or does it come from a newly appointed director who actually is less competent than some of their predecessors because they were chosen for political loyalty? Um, I think from the early reporting, it's not at all clear what the answer to that question is, but it's an interesting test case where you, you can look at a very specific institutional environment to try and answer that question. I think there would be another bit of evidence that would suggest that there's something about the deliberation process and the decision-making process that has been infected by this. And I'm not quite sure you know, what that means. But again, I think the idea that there needs to be experts who disagree. The thing about deferring to experts, it's not that you defer to experts because they have all the answers. You defer to experts because they disagree with each other and you can have lively debates. And some experts went out over other experts. I mean, think of the Obama response to the economic crisis, where you had, you know, Larry Summers on one side and, you know, people who are making the case for a much more aggressive response on the other side. And in the end, Obama sort of sided with the Larry Summers side, and maybe that was a mistake or maybe it wasn't, whatever. But in any case, there was experts who respected each other disagreeing with each other. Did that kind of process take place? And my guess is probably not. But that's only one hypothesis. Another hypothesis for the kind of failure is kind of argument about hollowing out of the state via neoliberalism. I mean, in some ways, maybe this, this reflects the underinvestment of generations of underinvestment in our institutions, underfunding of our institutions. I can imagine people making that argument. I don't know if that's right or not. A third argument is just a straightforward kind of bureaucratic politics argument. I mean, is there some kind of channels of, you know, sort of more like the 9-11 intelligence failures that it turns out that the experts were competing with each other and not talking with each other in ways that they ought to have, and that there was a kind of public administration breakdown, and there's a public administration fix that one can change the kind of channels of communication. And then I think a fourth argument is the kind of one that I initially made the point, which is that 
this reflects a particular legacy of American political institutions that have always been quite weak at the subnational level. And I understand that doesn't address the CDC issue, but that in some ways maybe an effective response requires both a strong center as well as strong subnational institutions. And that's you know because of America's particular tradition of kind of backward state politics that this in some ways hampered the responses. So these are four different possible answers. You know, maybe there's others, but those are the first four that occur to me anyway. Well, I look forward to one of your PhD students doing the studies we need in order to distinguish between those four theories. I think that's actually yeah. a great topic that we need to answer. Let me move to the topic that you and I spent a lot of time thinking about, which is populists. And I have a theory here, and it's a very, very initial theory. And I would not usually publicly share it, but since I tend to think of podcasts as basically being conversations between people with a bunch of people who happen to be listening in, let's just pretend that this is the two of us sort of trying to hash us out over coffee and don't quote me on this, anybody. Um, <laughs> so there's a prima facie puzzle, right? The puzzle is, you know, here are people like Donald Trump or here Bolsonaro or, you know, Reza Erdogan, who have spent the last years telling everybody the world seems like a fine and safe place. Actually, it's very, very dangerous. There are all of these hidden threats from outside of our own country. And the only way that we can keep you safe is for somebody like me to protect our nation, to be very hostile to those outsiders, to take on a little bit more power, perhaps to close down our borders with travel bans and so on. I mean, if you had paid me on the 1st of January 2020, uh, about 12 years ago, I believe, to sit down and try and come up with some scenario that seemed to credit that narrative more closely than the coronavirus, I would have struggled. And so, you know, you would think that these populists, especially those right-wing populists, would seize upon this from the first moment, saying, I told you the world was dangerous. I told you the state needs extra powers. I told you we have to close down our borders. I told you only I can protect you. Look at this. And yet that has not by and large been the response of these populists. It certainly for a long time has not been the response of Donald Trump in the United States, who called the concern about the coronavirus, not the virus itself, the concern about it, a democratic hoax, who kept comparing it to the flu, kept saying, this is not going to spread here. Why is that? That's the puzzle. Here's my not-to-be-quoted initial answer, which is, do you think it's something to do with the extent to which populists have grown comfortable with power and to which they feel like they have already taken effective control over the machinery of state? Because it seems to me that you see a real disjunction between populists depending on uh, length of tenure in office. So the relatively new populists like Trump and Bolsonaro have continued to downplay the threat and been very uncomfortable with empowering public institutions to respond. Whereas some people like Viktor Orban in Hungary or actually Narendra Modi in India have responded more extremely and more rapidly. And there doesn't seem to me to be a systemic difference between them other than how long have they been empowered? To what extent has their initial hostility to state institutions given a way to trust in state institutions because they already feel that they've managed to capture them? Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about this as well. So let me develop the point that you just made a little further. And so we're making progress here, I hope. Because one response to this, I mean, I think we should take seriously the possibility. I, I think this is not correct. But I begin with the idea that in moments of crisis, authoritarians will concentrate power. I mean, this is what authoritarians do. They use it as an opportunity to consolidate power. Anybody with authoritarian inclinations who's a leader is going to take advantage of a crisis. In fact, they often try to fabricate crises in order to consolidate power. And we certainly see that happening in some countries like Hungary, where Viktor Orban, for those of you yes. who don't know about that yet, has disbanded parliament, taken on powers to rule by executive order, made spreading, quote-unquote, false rumors on social media, punishable by jail time. So there certainly are cases of that happening. 
Yeah, so that's the sort of default position. And I think, again, you know, throughout the 20th century, there's lots of evidence of that. So then the puzzle then becomes, and, you know, in my book with Steve Levitsky, How Democracies Die, we make the case that the biggest threat is a moment of crisis. So here we are in a moment of crisis, and the Trump administration is acting quite passive. In fact, too passive for the, for the perspective of many observers. Okay, so why is this happening? Now, there is the possibility, well, maybe we we're wrong. Maybe he's not an authoritarian. I tend to think that that's not the case. But I could imagine his defenders saying, hey, see, look, you got this wrong. He was not an authoritarian. I think that's not the case. I think the same thing, a similar kind of argument about Bolsonaro could be made. But again, I think that's not the case. I agree with you that there is this divide, and it does seem as if Bolsonaro, Trump, and Erdogan, I mean, I've been looking at this as well. I mean, I think Erdogan's initial response was also more passive than people would have expected. So there is this divide between Orban on the one side and these other leaders on the other. And one way of thinking about this, it's restating in a way what you just said, which is that democracy, in fact, is more robust still in the United States and Brazil, at least. And I think in Turkey, the opposition is stronger. And so what I mean by that is that the opposition is actually stronger in these cases and is more united. I mean, the fact that you have a democratically controlled House of Representatives is not an insignificant detail here. So I think in all of these cases, these leaders are not particularly popular. I think Bolsonaro is not particularly strong. Trump's approval ratings, I mean, people you know, got very nervous about the bump and the rally around the flag effect, I guess, of this crisis. And he had a bump in his popularity. But, you know, in fact, the bump is quite small when compared to other governors within the U.S. or compared to previous presidents. I mean, lower than Jimmy Carter's bump in the face of the Iran crisis, of course, Jimmy Carter was not reelected. So I think the bump is actually quite small. And so I think Trump is actually a pretty weak leader. He's unpopular with large segments of the population. And so his avenue to coming back into power was he was going to run on the economy. And it took him a while to figure out that that was no longer going to work. And so he kind of played around with this idea of being a wartime president. And so I think my sense is that you're right, that these are cases where democratic institutions are more robust, the opposition is stronger, and these are leaders who are not have not entrenched themselves. So to interpret the Hungarian example, I mean, in some ways, Orban was further down the road of authoritarianism to begin with. I mean, he had already decimated the opposition. And so that when this moment of crisis came along, it was much easier to do this. So I think, you know, in a way, this comes back to this broader point uh, that we raised at the beginning. To what degree is this crisis a kind of critical juncture that upends everything? Or to what degree is this something that exposes and reveals and maybe accelerates processes already at work? And all of this discussion that we've just had here suggests that this is an accelerant of processes already at work that the places that were more authoritarian and where leaders were more entrenched, they're now further down that road. In the places where you have highly polarized politics and a strong opposition, you continue to have that. So I think our instincts are often adjacent, or we sort of are trying to think through similar problems from similar perspectives. And, you know, we make sense of them in slightly different ways, but it's always quite compatible. On this point, my instinct is somewhat goes in the opposite direction, which is that, you know, there's some people who want to say this will give a big systemic boost to populism around the world because people will see that populist narrative essentially being validated in this extraordinary way. There's others who say it'll completely prove that populists are incapable of governing and therefore make people wake up to the dangers of populism. And while I think that's substantively right, I'm not very optimistic about that prediction proving true. So my stance has been that after the initial rally around the flag effect, which, as you're saying, is relatively limited, in part because there's a lot of mistrust of governments in general, and in part because a lot of governments are not doing very well, and in part perhaps because I think it is easier to have a rally around the flag effect when it's hostage takers who are humans who you see on your nightly news, or when it is another country threatening you. I think the ability to sort of unite humans in the face of something abstract and biological like a virus rather than a group of human beings is more limited. And so I assume that the rally around the flag effect will start to fade in most places, unless some political leader really is able to lead the nation in an extraordinary exemplary fashion. And can I just add one point there, which is that I think that's important to 
distinguish between different types of crises. I mean, there's been all of these articles kind of saying that this is a crisis, that political leaders are trying to consolidate the power. But there is a difference, as you're saying, between a national security crisis that is an immediate threat. You know, from one day to the next, you have a major terrorist attack or an invasion versus a, a kind of relatively slow moving challenge of an epidemic. And so I think that the nature of the threat also matters, you know, because I do think that if there had been a major terrorist attack, we may be in a very different situation. Trump probably would have responded in a different way. His passivity wouldn't have been so visible in the face of a terrorist attack. Yeah. So one question is sort of from one day to the next. The other question is, what's the shape of the enemy? Right. And both of those matter. I agree. Now, what I was driving at and what I'd love to get your take on is if the rally around the flag effect is going to be limited. And if we're going tragically to see in many cities and countries, a lot of people dying needless deaths and horrible deaths. And if on top of that, we're likely to be in an economic recession six months from now or three months from now, or I mean, in fact, today, that has few precedents in recent history, people are going to be angry. And when people are angry, they tend to blame the government, whether or not that's fair and whether or not that's rational. And so rather than saying it'll entrench the power of those who are already in office, I would think that in general, this will favor the opposition over the government. Now, I don't think that that has a systematic impact on populism. I think since populists are already in power and about half of the developed democracies in the world. It will harm those who already hold office. I think it actually reduces Trump's chances of re-election in the fall. It might weaken somebody like Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil, but it might also strengthen populists who are lying in wait in the opposition in countries like France or Italy. So that was my hunch, but your hunch seems to be inverse. So I'd love to get oh, your response. No, no, to no, no. I, I mean, I'm agreeing with you in the sense that I think I'm not saying that this strengthens people who are in office. It strengthens authoritarians who are quite strong already. So in other words, like Viktor Orban is taking advantage of this opportunity. I think somebody like Bolsonaro and somebody like Trump who are quite weak you're exactly right that this actually further weakens them. And I also do think that the evidence is pretty clear that you know economic crises undermine incumbents. And so the degree to which this public health crisis becomes an economic crisis, which seems to be very likely, I think this will dramatically weaken both Bolsonaro and, and Trump. So, so I think I we've think come to a unified theory here, Dan, haven't we? Which is to say yeah. that yes. I, I was emphasizing the fact that in places where there are free and fair elections or relatively free and fair elections, this will favor the opposition over the government. In places in which an authoritarian leader already has so much power that there aren't free and fair elections, it allows them to take on even more power in such a way that they'll be difficult to, to displace. And that's true in places like Hungary. That's my instinct on this. And that's how I've been thinking about this. I was interviewed the other day by a Washington Post journalist who wanted to write a story about how this crisis is transforming politics. And by the end of the interview, I essentially said this, leaders who are already authoritarian, this is making them more authoritarian. Leaders who are quite weak, this is weakening them further. And by the end of the interview, he said, well, I guess I don't really have much of a story here, then do I? So I think there's, a, there's a great temptation to kind of think this is transformative. If this is not a critical juncture, what is? I mean, what's the value of the concept that political scientists and social scientists use of a critical juncture, transformative moment? If not this, what? But we may be suffering from the fate that we're so close to it that we're kind of missing the big picture or the kind of myopia about it. But that's my first sense of it. And I don't know much about the 1918 epidemic, but in different work that I'm doing, I've been studying the German Anglo-American bombings of German cities. This is for a historical project that I'm doing while I'm in Germany on the air bombing of German cities and, the, you know, the massive destruction of German cities. And one of the things that was so remarkable about that kind of moment in German history is that although it was incredibly devastating and obviously physically devastating, killing people, destroying 90% of homes and buildings, it was a topic that was a bit of a taboo topic in post-war Germany. And so because it wasn't talked about for so long, in some ways you might say it didn't have the effect that one might have expected this kind of massive bombing to have. And so I think in a similar way, it's possible to have a devastating, violent event that kind of comes and goes. And it, depending on how people, historians talk about it, how people talk about it, in retrospect, it's transformative or not. And so I think it's not inevitable that just because a lot of people die, that the world 
is fundamentally transformed and made unrecognizable. And in fact, can be an accelerant of current developments. Just to give you one other example of this, and there's actually a lot of kind of historical economics on this kind of question. Do epidemics reduce or increase inequality? And people have this kind of view, the Black Plague killed lots of people, so made the demands for labor higher. So actually, the Black Plague reduced inequality. But as in my own daily life and everybody, all your listeners' daily lives, as they know, the people who have second homes on Cape Cod and the Hamptons go out there and they, you know, and are able to pass on the cultural capital that they possess to their kids in homeschooling, versus the people who are stuck within cities and who have no capacity to instruct their kids at home, it's very possible that inequality gets only reinforced by this kind of crisis. So there's a way in which the crisis, I think reinforces pre-existing patterns, both politically and economically, in ways that sometimes are hard to first see. Yeah, and I think on that last point, that's also a question of measurement, which is to say that by the kind of metrics that social scientists classically use in order to measure whether an event like the coronavirus epidemic reduces or increases inequality, we are clearly seeing a reduction in inequality. When you look at wealth inequality and the kind of Gini coefficient, which I'm sure all of my listeners have heard about and which I'm sure only a few of us are able to coherently explain, has gone down over the last few months because that depends simply on who has how much money. When the stock market crashes, rich people lose a lot more money than poor people and therefore the Gini coefficient has gone down. Long-term left-wing policy goal has been achieved in the last month. Hurrah. Now, I think when you look at it in a more meaningful sense, it's quite clear that the rich are suffering less at the moment because they have nice, spacious apartments in cities or they're able to go to their nice country homes because they have more social and cultural resources to keep educating their children, as you're saying, because they might even be able to get help in an ongoing way because they can deliver, uh, get groceries delivered to their door because they can easily afford to pay the extra 10 or 15 bucks uh, delivery fee and tip, whereas a lot of poorer people are scooped up in very narrow apartments in non-ideal living situations, may not have the education to effectively homeschool their children, so they're losing a lot more. But by a lot of the traditional metrics of social science, that doesn't appear to be the case, which is kind of an interesting side element. So I have two questions left. The first is that you brought us in a perfect way, full circle from the beginning of a conversation, thinking about the long-term impacts on this. And the best metaphor I've been able to come up with, and it's a very imperfect one, because as we started out by saying, this is in many ways an extraordinary uh, and novel crisis, but it's perhaps the closest precedent we have, is 9-11. Now, in the days and weeks after 9-11, people thought that everything would change, that New York City would never be the same kind of place, that people might stop congregating in public, that perhaps the United States work is going to end up rounding up Muslims within its own country, that, I mean, all kinds of predictions about the, the, the truly radical changes it would bring to everyday American politics and everyday American life. Now, I think in retrospect, what we see, as historians love to say, is a story of continuity and change. There was some very important change in areas from international relations to the kinds of powers that the state has to survey certain communities or certainly people who are suspected of having sympathies for terrorism and so on. And yet, the changes were perhaps less consequential than they might have seemed in those days and weeks. What it would have felt like to walk down a street in New York City in 2006, I don't think was particularly different from what it would have felt like to walk down the street in New York in 2001, a few uh, weeks or months before those attacks. And I wonder whether that's the right metaphor for what's going to happen now, which is to say, going back to globalization, yes, nations will make sure that the things we truly need in an emergency situation, whether it's medical equipment like personal protective gear, or ventilators, or even whether it is military gear, uh, whether it is some forms of food supply, is available domestically. But in most areas, you know, I'm somewhat doubtful that there's going to be fewer passengers aboard planes 10 years from now than there was a few months ago. I'm somewhat skeptical that we're going to stop getting a lot of our electronic equipment and our clothes and so on produced abroad. So perhaps it'll be a story of radical change in a few specific areas, but continuity in most others. That's the closest I would come to a prediction right now while emphasizing that I may be utterly wrong. What do you think, Dan? This is uh, like making predictions at the end of the first quarter of a football game, right? So, I mean, the famous line, we're not at the beginning of the end, we're just at the end of the beginning. 
And I think that's right. The question, though, though, becomes what areas do we see change taking place and which areas do we expect continuity? I guess that's the more difficult question. Will kind of travel and global interconnections be decimated? I mean, I tend to think you are right. There probably will be a greater reliance on technology for meetings and so on. I mean, this sort of has been a thing that, you know, in my world of academics, I mean, people realize they can teach online and universities are going to realize this. So some of this stuff will be adopted more permanently. But I think one of the things about the kind of interconnections is we kind of forget, you know, when people say, this is a kind of detour a bit here, but when people say, oh, it turns out we can teach online or we get on, you know, we can have meetings on Zoom and so on. The success of those meetings and the success of teaching comes from the pre-existing social networks, real social networks that already were there. So you can continue to meet with your students, but it's helpful that you already knew your students. So starting from scratch would be a very different story. So I think there's a general lesson in that, which is that some of the things that we think are dramatic changes, turns out the initial kind of social pattern was quite useful to begin with, and that's why it existed. And so I think some of these kind of technological changes will not be as decisive. One area, I guess, where one might expect change, and maybe this is kind of wishful thinking on my end is the degree to which people do see kind of healthcare as an immediately salient issue and debates around uh, universal healthcare. I mean, I do think, you know, even though it's clear that having universal healthcare doesn't prevent coronavirus, I mean, lots of European systems with universal healthcare also suffering greatly, but I think people understand that the vulnerability of our systems. And so I kind of wonder to what degree kind of views on on social policy, on health policy might be altered in, in major ways. You know, it depends a lot on the ability of political entrepreneurs to take advantage of this opportunity. But I think the issue is there to be picked up. So I think that's one area where one might see some change and kind of greater attention to public health institutions and healthcare. So anyway, those would be some of my predictions. Again, I think we're, we're telling up pretty well. I mean, I think it does hopefully make it more likely that the United States will be able to pass, you know, things like decent sick leave policies, things like more universal access to healthcare, because the argument that this is, in fact, to everybody's benefit, which, again, seemed a little abstract and clever by half a few weeks ago, for I believed those arguments and made those arguments, will now seem much more compelling. Now, that's not a major change in the trajectory of the world. It would be a way in which the United States becomes a little bit more like its peer countries, improving the lives of millions, but it's hardly a radical nature of our political or economic regime. If I had to put money on an unquotable bet right now, my bet would be on conservatism in terms of how radical the changes are going to be. Stems from the fact that it's a very weird kind of crisis in that it completely structurally alters the conditions of human life for somewhere between a year or two years. We're too early to know exactly how long. Right now, there is a disease which is both very deadly and which our public health systems simply are not set up to cope with. But there's good reasons to be optimistic that a year to two from now, we will have radically improved treatment options, we will have expanded the ability of our healthcare systems to deal with corona patients, and most importantly, by then we will hopefully have a vaccine. And at that point, the outside conditions have gone back to what they were before, essentially. Now, of course, a lot will happen in that year or two, including potentially a deep economic crisis. You know, normally a crisis is not temporary in that way. It actually changes the alignment of fundamental factors determining our political and economic system. In an odd way, that's not true of this pandemic. And that, I think, is fascinating. Now, I want to end on a question that you've brought up briefly earlier and that I think we're going to be facing in a serious way over the next months and years. And it's that people who are rightly worried about the opportunity this presents to authoritarian populists like Viktor Orban in Hungary, and who fear, as I do, that even somebody like Donald Trump may eventually see the ways in which he could try to abuse this in order to expand his power and undermine institutions even further than he has over the last three years, have to walk this very careful balancing act between favoring and even advocating some of the extraordinary measures we need to take right now in order to save human lives, and at the same time, not wanting to be naive about 
the ways in which governments may try to claim certain powers in order to entrench themselves. So as we ponder whether the German government should be allowed to track people's mobile phones to figure out who has this virus and ensure that they get quarantined, how do we think about those trade-offs? How do we navigate those very consequential political decisions in the next weeks and months? Yeah, we should have talked about this earlier. We shouldn't have waited till the end. No, because I think this is really decisive. And I think it's quite dangerous, in fact, to conflate aggressive response to genuine life-threatening risks and authoritarianism. So in other words, to say that Donald Trump is passive is not to say he's democratic. You know, so the lack of an aggressive response shouldn't make us think, that oh, liberalism and democracy are alive and well. Because in fact, I think it's actually very useful to kind of come up with a checklist and a set of criteria, a kind of litmus test, so to speak, of what kinds of actions count as authoritarian and which kind of actions are reasonable responses of a democratic state in trying to deal with the crisis. And so some of the criteria I would think are, number one, restrictions on free media and punishment of media are not necessary for dealing with an epidemic. And in fact, you know, having a free media is critical. So anything that restricts the freedom of media is a problem. That's not a genuine response to an epidemic. That's using it for opportunistic ways. Anything that tries to weaken the opposition or has the effect of weakening the opposition by, let's say, not allowing for elections or by, you know, hampering elections, this is, is also unexcusable. I mean, to come up with the list, we can look at what Viktor Orban is doing, right? These kinds of things, you know, shutting down of parliaments, shutting down of elections, criticizing media, these are genuine threats to democracy. So when you see a political leader justifying an assault on democracy by saying we're trying to deal with the epidemic, one should be very skeptical. On the other hand, there are th things such as limiting the movement of people you know, the ability of people to play in the park and kids to play on play structures and in Germany, you know, right now, officially anyway, you're not supposed to be with more than one other person, two people, like only gatherings of two people are allowed. One might say, oh, this is a restriction on freedom of association. But this is, you know, not at all political. It's intended as a strictly as a safety measure. You know, it's not permanent. There's a clear kind of end point of several weeks. Uh, it probably will be extended, which, you know, should make one nervous. But that kind of thing is a real thing. And I guess that final kind of criteria would be to what degree is the opposition included in this process and allowed to kind of, you get opposition buy-in to this. If you have opposition buy-in for some of these measures, then I think to that extent, it's less, less to, not to say that you can't buy off the opposition and um, in a kind of corrupt way. And, but, you know, so one ought to be aware, aware of that risk, but, you know, a skeptical opposition, if it buys into some of these measures, then that should make us less worried. So again, I think it's really important to have clear distinction in our minds. And the reason I say it's in fact dangerous to conflate kind of reasonable measured responses to epidemics and assaults on democracy is that the absence of response of reasonable measured responses that really address the crisis, in fact, feed into the hands of authoritarians. Because if you don't deal with these processes in a real way, and these challenges and these, and these real life and death issues in a real way, then you are opening the door to more extreme measures down the road. So I think it's really critical to make this distinction. This seems to me to be the double danger of this political moment. So I think one danger is that we allow governments with authoritarian ambitions to exploit this moment in order to take power in a permanent manner. And I think in order to guard against that, we have to insist on free conditions, which I think all of which you mentioned in one way or another in what you were just saying. And the first of those is that the measures should be limited in time. They should be temporary. The second is that there needs to be some form of ongoing democratic and judicial control over them, which both means that the opposition has a real ability to help shape the nature of those measures, that parliaments have an ability to end them if they determine that they are no longer needed, and that citizens can have recourse against an unjust or unfair application of them. And then the third and most important is that they have to be narrowly tailored and strictly necessary. They can't just be all kinds of things government would kind of like to be able to do. They have to have 
a direct connection to the compelling state interest and the safety of its citizens that make rules about social distancing necessary at the moment, for example. Now, I think the second great danger is that we mistrust governments so much and we are so willing to cry wolf that, first of all, unnecessary suffering and death will result, which is the most important potential danger. Uh, but secondly, that people will say, oh, all of you people, you know, keep going on about democracy and so on, and because a few people are now dying in the streets. So who cares about this democracy if you can't keep people safe? I think this is a test that democracies will only pass if they manage at the same time to stop an authoritarian takeover and to take some of the extraordinary measures we need in order to keep citizens safe. And I think that's a political adventure we'll have to be following along for the next months. It's the old effectiveness and accountability. You kind of need both at the same time. There are these tensions, but I think the way you've put it is exactly right. Effectiveness and accountability. Dan, thank you so much for yes. coming on this podcast. And we'll just have to have another conversation about this, let's say, six months or six eternities down the road. Yes. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. This podcast is generously supported by the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Thank you.